Blog Talk Radio. I'm Laura Mize, Pediatric Speech-Language Pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Today, I want to begin the podcast with a really exciting announcement. Now, I have shared bits and pieces of my personal life here on the show from time to time, so all of this isn't news, but I feel really like this is the time to share it, and again, this, this the beginning of this story <laughs> doesn't sound so great, but it really does have a happy ending, but... Let me just go for it here. In 2014, a nuclear bomb went off in our family. And on this side of that disaster, we don't look the same. We don't have all the members of our family anymore. And frankly, guys, that was devastating for me. It was just incredibly difficult. And not just for me, but for those of us who are left. In the first couple of years after that happened in 2014, I was, I was in a fog. I was still speaking. I was still seeing kids. I was still going through the day-to-day motions. But as time went on from that, and I began to accept the reality that this change would be permanent, and there was nothing that I could do to fix it, even though I tried. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I tried everything I could to fix things on my own, and when, when that became really, really obvious to me and everybody around me that that was just not going to happen, I just entered a sheer period of despair. I mean, it was darkness and emptiness and heartbreak like I have never, ever, ever known and never thought that I would be a part of. And, and or just like anything like that would ever happen in my family. So two years ago, in an attempt to recover, Johnny and I just decided that we needed to change our whole lives. And God led us to a Stanford, Kentucky, which is a beautiful small town in central Kentucky. And, and we just changed everything about us and everything about how we lived. And God just showed us that we had to slow our lives way, 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 way down and find a rhythm and flow again and not to live and struggle and crisis all day, every day anymore, and just figure out how to do everyday life again. And so it has taken us two full years to do that. And, you know, some days it looks like we blew it more than we were succeeding, but it's worked, and Jesus is really healing that heartache. And so we're finally feeling like ourselves again. I've got some joy and some excitement and finally some hope and some peace again. And so the entire time that we were, we've been here, we looked for space to see kids. You know, we kept our publishing company up and going to teach me to talk and the show and everything. And thank you so much for hanging in here with me for these two years. But we finally found a place uh, that I can see kids again. So to take a line from uh, my first course, I am getting back on the floor. And as you can tell, I'm so excited to be on it. We're uh, opening our new office in the next couple of months. And we're just ready to celebrate our new life and our new mission. And I'm just thrilled beyond belief to be able to share that here on the show. So thank you so much for this opportunity. And that's it. That's my big announcement. So uh, I'll be talking more and more about it in the next uh, couple shows, but it just it feels like relief. And again, I just am just so thankful to God that he's done this for us. All right, so let's move on. Let's move on to today's show. Today we're going to be talking about seven key principles for success when working with toddlers and preschoolers. And these seven nuggets of advice are going to help you no matter what communication skill you're trying to teach for the child, whether you're working on helping a child learn to use more words 
or to follow directions or to begin with an AAC device or to improve speech intelligibility. All these principles are going to work no matter what's going on with the child, no matter what developmental uh, status they are, their current status, their current level of functioning. And again, no matter what you're working on, whether it even be something totally unrelated to language, whether it be a motor skill or a cognitive skill, if we can keep these seven principles in mind, we're going to be on the right track. And this information and advice really applies to not only therapists who are working with children, and again, I mean across all fields, speech-language pathologists, we have a lot of early interventionists who are really teachers, early early childhood teachers who listen to the show, lots of OTs and some PTs here and there, but it does not really matter what discipline you're working in because th these core principles will guide you and will help make your sessions the most successful and the most effective that you can do. And this information also works for parents. So even if you are a mom or dad, even if you're going it alone, if for some reason you do not have access to services and you are your child's only, only person who's working to help them improve their ability to communicate, or if you're the parent and your child is in therapy, and that's the best situation, by the way, <laughs> But if you if you are really, you know, I want you to think about yourself as the leader of your team, as the driver of your child's services. And let me just say, too, before we get into what these seven things are, I got an email from a mom this week, and actually I've gotten a couple like this in the last few weeks that have, they've also resonated with me because they've said the same thing. And any time I start to get the same message from a lot of different sources, I think, aha, <laughs> I'm supposed to hear this. I'm supposed to share this. This is important. Listen up, Laura. But this is one, one thing that a mom, I, I just read it a day or two ago, and she said, you know, I, I have an older child, and I've listened to your podcast for years. You know, this show started in 2008, so we're on our 11th year here. And she said, you know, some, my child is older now and nonverbal. And I always think, gosh, should I be listening to the show anymore? Because Laura always says this is for toddlers and preschoolers. She said that this is where I get most of my information because my child is still developmentally in that stage. This is where she is. And so these, these strategies and these recommendations and these goals are what we're still working on. And let me just say, if you are a parent in this situation, this show is still for you because we've got to meet kids where they are. And we're going to talk about that in, uh, as we move along with these seven uh, keys to successfully working with toddlers and preschoolers. But don't let those words throw you. If you have a child who is not yet communicating, if you have a child who is minimally verbal, no matter how old they are, these strategies are for you. And this show is for you. And I welcome you with open arms. And I, 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 I want your child to get better. I want your child to be at the point that you say, hey, I have outgrown Laura. I don't need her anymore. But that's totally, totally different than you just thinking, hey, my kid's older than all this now. Because it really doesn't matter what materials you use or what, you know, you've got to just take this information and modify it and adapt it to what the, the child that you're working with and the child that you love, that you are trying to help. Uh, just adapt, adapt this information. And, it, again, it, you will not be using toddler toys or things that are of preschool interest, maybe. Or maybe your child is still, you know, older, even 8 or 10 or 6 or however old, but they still like this sort of thing. Don't feel like this information isn't relevant anymore just because the number of candles on the birthday cake are, are, are increasing. 
stick to where a kid is developmentally and you will never, ever, ever go wrong. So I wanted to mention that too. And I know that this isn't the majority of the audience for this show, but for those parents who are out there that you're still looking for information and you're still really, what you're doing when you're listening to the show is you're listening for hope. And I hope that Hannah inspired you on the last show that I did. And if you have not listened to show 356, go back and listen to that. Uh, the show just immediately preceding this one. It's a speech pathologist who is a mom of a child with a really rare diagnosis. And as a speech therapist, she had kind of given up on hearing her child ever talk. And he's five now, and guess what? He's starting to use the noise. And, and she was even uh, a little, oh, gosh, well, she was more objective than even she should have been because she had her therapist hat on. And she was saying, I don't think he's really saying that. I don't know if this is really purposeful. I don't know if this is intentional. And thank goodness he kept doing it so that she realized this is real. He's using words. And so if you have not listened to that show, please go back and listen to that. And I hope, too, that it will inspire you and give you some new additional ideas for you to try at home, too. All right. So let's move to talking about what these seven principles are. Now, this information is from my therapy manual that I released in October of 2018. So just a couple of just out a couple months and it relates to speech intelligibility or articulation but when I was looking at this guys it's what I use no matter what I treat a kid and we've already said this is relevant to you whether you're doing speech therapy or you are a developmental interventionist or, or uh, an OT assistant but you are working in early intervention or a psychologist this information is for you so that you can your time with a child and a family to just be as mildly successful as you can be. And so this is also for parents. And so as a therapist, anytime you hear this is for parents, that should just be a light bulb going off in your head because that means this is what you should be teaching parents to. So not only should we be implementing this in our sessions with kids, whether we see them at home or in a school setting or in a clinical setting, wherever we are in daycare, this is the information that we should be sharing with the people who carry out the the recommendations that you make. So even when you're working with a child, this this these seven things you're going to say to a mom, hey, I want you to remember that we've got to blah, 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 blah. And let me fill in the blah, blah now. So I've used kind of a, a little catchphrase, keep it, and then we're going to fill in with these seven things with what we're doing. And the very first principle that we need to keep in mind when we are working with toddlers is to keep it fun. And so the underlying theme for every therapy session with any young child, no matter what we're working on, should be a big, big, big dose of fun. And this is especially true when we are working on things that have been so incredibly difficult for a child to master. And so anytime we see a child who's qualified for therapy or who, who meets those that eligibility criteria, we know that something has gone wrong. Something is missing from what we expected to happen in that child's trajectory of improvement. So he or she, for whatever reason, is not developing like we know that it, things should move along. So we know because of that that something is hard. For whatever reason, they are just not acquiring that particular milestone or skill in uh, the way that we expected. And so we have to remember when something is hard for us, no matter how old we are, we don't want to do it. 
we don't always want to persist. Now, some of us come into this world with an extra dose of perseverance and motivation, and even if things are hard, tend to want to make it better. But most of us are not like that. <laughs> most of us want to quit and give up and avoid and escape and move on. And guess what? Babies and toddlers and preschoolers are like that too. So anytime something's hard, when we're trying to teach a child something new like that that's been really, really difficult for them to learn, we have to be uh, a, a just as fun and as positive and as encouraging as we can be. And so words like positive and encouraging and motivating sometimes get lost in what that means for people, you know, and I have like, – like if you watch a show on television about uh, like The Biggest Loser or some kind of fitness show – those coaches may be encouraging or motivating. Let's take encouraging out. They may be motivating, but they may do it negatively. So they may be really hard and harsh and yelling and, oh, so on it. And so they are trying to motivate the person, which may work for us as adults, and sometimes it may work for kids, but I'm telling you, I think we should go the other way. And so I like to think about this word instead of, even a word like positive, I like to think about it as fun. And when I can say to a family, hey, we've got to lighten it up here and keep this fun. We've got to be playful and keep it fun. We're working hard here, but we've got to be fun. When we put the fun word in there and when we emphasize that as the underlying philosophy that we want to do, it keeps everybody on track and keeps everybody, again, lightened up and, and focused on not how difficult it is and not the drudgery and not the almost pain that it takes sometimes to teach a child something new. And so anytime something is going wrong in a session or anytime I'm working with a family, even if it's just a phone call, I try to always stop, and especially since I've had this big life change, <laughs> try to stop and remind myself, be fine. Make this exciting. Make this, uh, you know, just as pleasant as possible. And so that that's always something to keep in mind. Here's the thing. A lot of times when we say, especially to an adult, you've got to keep this fun, most of the time parents and therapists will automatically say, I am. I do. Are you kidding me? That's what we're doing when nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> And so if that's you, if you're feeling a little bit defensive about this or if you are feeling like, of course I'm fine, you know, that's a big indicator that you're probably not. <laughs> and it takes a really mature adult to be able to step back from your own behavior and say, hey, I really want to look at what I'm doing here. I really need to make sure that I'm on track here. I've got to do a lot of self-analysis. And so sometimes watching yourself and again, you can kind of, uh, you know, as you're kind of your own out-of-body experience, as you're sitting there working with your own child or with a child that you're seeing for therapy, if you're a therapist, sometimes you can do that in person and realize, boy, I'm not being fun enough. I do not sound happy. I would run away from me if I were if I were this kid too, because boy, I am just on him. I, I this is in no way, shape, or form 
there there is nothing cheerful about what I am sounding like and looking like here in this situation. Sometimes we can do that in a session, or I hope we can do it all the time, but a lot of times you might have to watch yourself on video. And again, really get out of your head here and get a little bit more objective about it and just watch. Look at your face. Are you smiling? Are your eyes sparkly and twinkly? Do you look like you are having a good time? And so that's always a measure, too. See how much fun you are having in a session. And it is so tough for some people to be able to make this adjustment. And so a lot of times, you know, that's when I begin to work with the family. Um, that That's one of the things that I've always done over the years is really sometimes I just have to say to mom, look, we are not going to do anything today except have a good time. We are not going to really focus on a specific goal here. We're not going to really focus on anything other than making sure your child is having the time of his life. And, you know, a lot of times if things have just gone really downhill with a kid, you know, if they are crying a lot in therapy, if they are running away from me instead of to me, that's what I do. I say, I've got to get back. I've got to get this fun back. And so you just do nothing but play and play and play. Or or whatever the kid's favorite activity is, you stop and you get back to that point of where this is fun and we're all having a good time so that that's just kind of your reset. And so parents, be sure that you're using that same barometer. If you have just, you know, if, if your time when you are working on speech, and I would say that in quotes, if you were seeing me right now, I'm sitting here, you know, doing my little fingers in, with my little quotation marks in, in the air here. If it's speech time and your child has suddenly become super negative, that's a big indicator that's not fun enough. So you've got to adjust. Anytime a child is doing something that can be classified as a behavior problem or doesn't act like you want to participate, so that's running away, biting, pulling your hair, just pitching a royal fit. Anytime he's doing that, you, that's always an indicator that things have gotten off course. And so you've just got to stop and, again, kind of reset that whole fun baseline. So, and I just, I, I cannot tell you how many times that has just, that one thought in my mind has just totally turned around a really challenging session or a little uh, friend who has just suddenly taken a turn for the worse. Just me thinking, Laura, be more fun. Be more fun. Pep it up here. Have a good time. Smile. Act happy. <laughs> you know, those kinds of things will really, really make a difference there. All right, so that was number one. That was our first principle, keep it fun. The next key principle is keep it real. So what do I mean by real? I mean as much as possible, you need to try to use as many real objects and real toys while you're working with the child to teach them whatever it is that they're learning. Toddlers learn by doing and so the activities and the materials that you use really, really do matter. So the biggest temptation here in this area, especially when we're working on something like speech intelligibility, is to resort to using materials like apps or flashcards or any kind of prepackaged program. Most of the time, we should be keeping that activity focused on real objects, real toys, real things that we're doing in a child's home or even in the office environment. No matter what you learned in grad school or no matter what bad habits you have gotten into, as an early interventionist, flashcards and articulation and uh, 
for pictures or apps, most of the time those are not going to be developmentally appropriate for toddlers, especially if we are focused on helping them learn to understand what words mean. So especially with that receptive language component. Now there will be children who have some visual interest and visual strengths, and pictures are your door. Pictures are your way that you, you get them hooked. But you've always got to help those kids transfer those skills so that if they see a picture of a banana, they can also say banana when they see the real banana in real life. And so there are kids who are going to feel like they're outliers or exceptions, but most of the time with the toddlers and preschoolers that we're working with, we always need to use as many real-life activities as we can. Now, toys are real life. Playing should be the most um frequent activity that a child does in the course of a day because that's how kids learn everything. They they learn through play. And so real toys, real items, real daily events. You know, don't read a book about taking a bath to teach a child new vocabulary related to bath time. Take a bath. <laughs> Nothing is going to be more uh, salient and more important to that child. You, know, than, you, you can't teach water, the word water, with a picture as well as you can by turning on the faucet. So remember to really, really, really keep it real. Now, please know that I'm not anti-technology. There are some amazing tools out there, and especially for speech pathologists who are working on articulation and speech intelligibility. And remember, that's where this whole little uh, set of seven guidelines came from. It's from the Functional Phonology book, so I'm always going to take it back to that particular role that you're going to be working on. And it is so tempting, especially for SLPs, to use a lot of pictures with kids because we're more efficient that way. We feel like, well, I can teach more verbs with these pictures because it's going to be easier for me to flip through these flashcards here and have this child see all these different actions and activities than it would, uh, than I can accomplish here in the therapy session. That is a lie. <laughs> It may be more efficient, that would be the truth, but it is never going to be more, uh, you're, you're never going to be as effective with pictures as you would by real life. So let's just take that example of teaching verbs. If you're not going to teach verbs or action words with pictures, how do you teach them? You teach them by doing the action. So you could either do those actions with the kid, you know, instead of showing him a picture of running, you get up and run at the room as you're saying, running, 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 you're running, come on, let's run. You can totally teach it better than that than by using pictures of that. And again, will it wear you out? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is much easier to sit at a table and flip cards or use an app with your phone or a tablet than it is to take the time to do these things in real life. But it, you will never be as successful as you teach a child these kinds of concepts in real life. You can also do these things with, uh, let's use our same example with teaching verbs, teaching a child to understand and use more action words. You can do that with toys. And so then you just think about every toy that you play with with that child in that session or if you're a mom or dad in that day, you're emphasizing what action the toy completes. And so if you're playing with an airplane, you're going to say fly. You are going to say go. You're going to say stop. You're going to open the doors. You'll close the doors. The little characters that you play with in the plane, you make them do all kinds of things. You make them walk up the, uh, the steps to get on the plane. You make them sit in the seat. You make them stand up. So, again, think about how whatever your goal is and think what material or what toy can I use this with or go the other way? 
you say no matter what we're doing today, no matter what our activity is, whether it's here in the session or at home, if my goal is verbs and action words, I am going to drive that home all day long and we're going to think about or I'm going to think about how I can teach action words all day long. You do not need an app for that. You do not need a set of pictures for that because you are doing things all day long. So to teach action words, you act. And so think about that. You, and again, this, this um, focus, whatever your focus is, you can do that all day. If you're thinking, if a child's uh, speech intelligibility goal is using more, um, more D's and N's and T's, so those alveolar sounds, those sounds in the middle of his mouth. You just think about words all day long. What words start with T? What words start with D? What words start with N? What words can I pull together from this real-life activity that we're doing? Oh, he's refusing this choice right now, so he's going to tell me no. Okay, great. That starts with N. You know, he wants another turn with the toy. Okay, great. That starts with T. And so, again, you think of everything that you can with whatever activity that you're doing, and think, what is my goal here, and how can I layer this goal into this activity that we're all already doing? And sometimes that's a little more of a challenge, especially for parents. You just got to think about it. You know, boy, I've got to keep this real for my child. So what kinds of real-life activities am I doing here, and how can I make sure that we are working on his goal or whatever your focus is in the middle of our real life here? So keep it real. Don't always lapse to a picture or an, a game on uh, his tablet or your tablet. And don't always think you have to do it with a book either. Books are fantastic, and books are, you know, we learn by reading and we learn visually our whole lives, but don't think that you always have to do it with that. You can almost always come up with a real-life activity that's going to make more sense to the child, and then because you're teaching it in real life, it will naturally have more meaning and the child will usually remember it and learn it more quickly. So it's, it's faster and easier. So think about that principle. So first we did keep it fun and then we did keep it real. And now let's take an offshoot of that for uh, number three is keep it realistic. So one thing that we always have to keep in mind when we're working with a child is that we never start by working on what the end goal is when a child is not even close to that. So we've got to meet a child where he is and then move forward from there. And I mentioned this earlier in the show. You, if, if a child is not talking, that there are so many prerequisites or those pre-linguistic skills that he's missing, you can't work on saying words yet. You've got to fill in those foundational skills first. So let me give you an example that I've shared here on the show before, but that I always use with parents because it really, really works. And if you're a parent, if you've never heard me say this before, I hope that this will you as you're trying to understand your child's issues. If you're a therapist, this is a great example to use with parents because they really, really like it and understand it. So here's the example. We say for a child, and let's just use language because that's my thing, but remember you can use it with any skill that you're working on. If we were, if we were to say your child is not talking yet, but he is not really ready to work on saying words. He cannot imitate words after us yet. 
that's because he's not understanding words yet. We've got to teach him how to understand words better. And then really he's not even really ready to understand words yet because he's not connecting with people yet. He's not engaged enough with people. So we've got to teach him how to interact with us better way before we get to him talking because communicating always takes two people and he's not really doing that nice back and forth communicating with other people yet. And so if a parent does not get that example and that or you want to make this more meaningful for them, take something like algebra and you're, you, you say to a parent, you would never start to teach a child algebra. You've got to back that up and make sure he can multiply and divide. And if a child can't multiply and divide numbers yet, he's got to know how to add and subtract. And before he knows how to add and subtract, he's got to understand what numbers are, that they're representative of quantity. And so before, before we do that, he's got to learn how to count. And before he can really learn how to count, Meaningfully, it's got to count rote or just, you know, quote the numbers after you. And so see how that's a logical, sequential process. We start with kids counting by rote, and then they learn quantity and learn how to really what, what number concepts mean. And then we teach them addition. And once they've learned addition, we teach them subtraction. And once they've learned subtraction, then they move on multiplication. And then when they learn multiplication, then we teach division. So you can see how, that, how we learn numbers and learn math by that very sequential logical process. That's what we have to do when, we, when we're breaking down any goal when we talk to a parent about how we're teaching that. And so with language, that's what we do. Instead of thinking about working on speech intelligibility first, you know, I have this kid who's sort of trying to talk, but I can't understand anything he's saying. And you back it up and say, well, what's his vocabulary like? How, how many real words is he even using? And then, then you back it up again and say, well, actually, he's not understanding very many real words. We've got to get him to understand words first. And then if he's not really listening when somebody talks to him, he's, he's missing that engagement piece. And so, again, it is such a sequential logical process, but parents don't think about teaching a child language in that way because when kids are developing, typically those kinds of things just come in automatically. We don't give it very much thought. It's just happening. And so we do have to break those, those skills down so that parents can see learning language doesn't start with him repeating a word after you. There's so many things that have to come in first, those foundational skills. And so as a therapist, that's how we have to be able to explain it to parents. And wherever the the glitch is that a child is having, whatever the problem is, that's where we have to start. That's, that's what we have to focus on in the beginning. We have to meet the child where they are. And so, again, a lot of times with language development, with uh toddlers with communication delays, it's not at the expressive language or the speech intelligibility piece. There are actually things that are, are missing well before a child would get to that level. So you have to really, really help a parent understand that, that each step is contingent upon the previous step. You cannot jump ahead and expect a lot of success. So that's what I mean by keeping it realistic. You know, a lot of times I'll say, and I've said it over and over on the show, You'll look at a kid's goal and you'll think, well, we can't even get there from here. You know, there's just no way. He's just not ready. This goal is so unrealistic. We have to back it way down and figure out where, what is the very first thing that's missing with this child. And that's what we start to work on, not our end result. We get realistic, meeting the child where they are. Okay, the next piece, the next key here is keep it meaningful. So what do I mean by keep it meaningful? It means that we make sure that 
a child wants to do what we're asking him to do or he needs to do what we're asking him to do. It, it, it's relevant to his everyday life. And this is so important for children because it really gets to that motivation piece or that intrinsic internal desire piece. And so we have to really think about that. And we call those motivators for parents. And so we really, really have to find a child's currency. What does he love so much that he will do almost anything for, including learn something new that's previously been hard? And so identifying a child's motivators is a really, really, really important piece for keeping it meaningful. And that, that just addresses everything, especially with toddlers, to keep them wanting to do what you're asking them to do. So when we are working on teaching a child how to communicate, we can't just use any old thing that's kind of, eh, for a kid. Why would he want to work for that? Why would he want to stay with it away? Of course he doesn't care very much. Of course he wants to move on to something else that he likes better. So the thing that we have to do is figure out a way to use the what he likes better as what we're using in therapy. So we have to really, really think about what a kid likes or what he needs so that we are using those as our um, material in therapy or as a primary activity in therapy. So a lot of times uh, with toddlers, we can look at what their specifics are. So if they, let's just say they're fixated on the show Paw Patrol. Well, then we would look at what materials, what toys, what activities, what ideas that child has in his very favorite thing on earth, which is watching that show, how can we incorporate that? How can I use that as a motivator? For a kid who loves junk food, we would use the junk food. And again, not as the reward, not as say this word and I'll give you a goldfish. Use the goldfish <laughs> if that's what he really, really likes. A lot of times with toddlers, it really is movement. So for kids who are busy and on the go, you think, there it is. That's what he likes to do. He likes to run. And so instead of him running away from me in therapy, let's figure out how I can incorporate this movement so that it's part of the game. Maybe we're going to play ready, set, go. Maybe we're going to play chase. Maybe we're going to go outside and run and run and run and run and run. And that is the therapy. That's what we're doing. We make that the purposeful activity for a kid who loves toys. We do everything we can to include that particular toy in the session. So again, we've kept it meaningful so that the child wants to participate and wants to do uh, whatever it is so that we have addressed that motivation piece. All right. So that was that was keep it meaningful. Let's move on to the next one. And I've lost my numbers. I don't have my number list here. I think we're probably on number five maybe. <laughs> so the next key principle is keep it moving. And if you've listened to the show at all, you know that I use a move-sit, move-sit philosophy, which means that we are not sitting down for an entire therapy session. We are up and moving as often as we can during therapy. And for some kids, that means that we're moving at the beginning and then we're sitting down. And we may sit down for 10, 15 minutes, but then as soon as they are giving an indication that they are up and moving away, you get up and move with them. And, again, that's not that you are just letting them move around and then you bring them back to what the therapy activity is. 
like we've already said, we keep, we meet them where they are. And so if that's what they need to do, that's what we need to do too. And we keep that part of the activity. And I'll tell you, I saw a little guy this week and he is not even two yet. It's His birthday isn't until next month. So he's got a good six weeks before he even turns two. And he has a language delay on top of that. So developmentally, he's back more at around that 18-month level, maybe even a little shy of that. And so he needs to move a lot. And a lot of his, a lot of therapy is him doing something with his mom and me. And his grandmother comes to our sessions too. Uh, doing that together, and then he is up and kind of moving away from us. So every time he moves away, I try to do a social game with him. He loves the social game night-night or pretending to go to sleep. And so he will go over, <laughs> and wherever he is, just plop, plop his little body down the floor and play night-night, which means I either have to get up and go over where he is, and more often than not, I'm just, you know, make myself, put myself on the floor too, just lay down right where I am, you know, and we do the whole you know, pretending we're asleep and doing the snoring and counting and then saying, you know, we ought, we jump up and say, wake up, and put our arms up in the air. That's his movement bump, doing that. And so then the next time he moves away from me, you know, it might be this week, uh, one thing he did is throwing balls. I was trying to get him to play with my little ball and hammer toy, and he would throw the balls and, and move away. And so then you know, okay, this toy's not working. I've got to get up and move. And so you have him, uh, he was at one end of the room, and I was at the other, and then we were rolling balls back and forth and running and chasing the balls. And so that's how you keep it moving in the session. You follow the flow and follow the rhythm of what the child is doing. Now, is, does that mean that you always let a child run away and then never bring him back to what he's doing? And I can hear some of you moms right now saying, that is never going to work because all he's going to want to do is run away. I get it. But if you will give them kids, especially kids who are one and two and three, if you will give them, or or kids who are at that developmental level, no matter how old they are, if you will give them an opportunity to move regularly as you are working with them, the the time that they can actually sit with you and participate will increase. Now, it may be very gradual so that you may have to look at this like on a month-to-month or sometimes it's, I think, a quarter-to-quarter basis. <laughs> so if I start working with a little guy in January and he is just a ball of movement, but in April or May he may start to sit with me for longer periods of time. And that is how you have to think about it with some kids, especially the younger they are or the greater their delay, probably the more movement breaks and more movement opportunities they need. And you can't just let that go unchecked, meaning that you don't do anything, especially during a therapy session during that time. You've got to think about what your therapy activities are that you can use as a part of that movement. So social games are the very best thing to do. Even a kid that needs movement, it doesn't always have to be running around the room. You can play a game on your lap where you're bouncing them like ride a little horsey or you're doing up and down where you're putting them down on your legs and then bringing them back up or you're lifting your knees up and playing an up-down game that way where you say up, 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 up when they're on your knees and then down and you plop your legs to the floor. That's a movement game too. And so you want kids to know that they can get their movement with you and that they're socially engaged and it's fun to play with you and they don't have to run away from you to be able to get that what their little bodies need. So think about that, too, so that you are including that as a part of your session. Now, I have, if you are working on speech intelligibility, and I've I've mentioned functional phonology before, 
but I love how organized the therapy uh, manual because I grouped it into lists of moving around activities and sitting down activities. And so even if you're just working on language with a kid, teaching him to understand more words and say more words, think about that as 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 your session. Think about what can I do that's up and moving around, and then what kinds of things are we going to do today where we're sitting down. And so even if you're doing working in a system where you're using a consultative model, meaning that you are going into a home and you're making suggestions and giving recommendations rather than working directly with the child. You should always be modeling things. You should always be showing mom. You should be talking about things that mom can do and saying, here, and here's how this looks. Let's just do it. Let's just do it right now so you'll see how this looks. And so you can even talk about things like moving around and sitting down and, and what kinds of activities you do for that, especially when mom says, my child won't work with me. He won't sit down with me. He never sits still. I can never get him to pay attention. Those are your red flags that you think, this kid probably needs more movement. To, to get this attention span increased, we've got to start where his little, we address the physical needs and the sensory needs of his little body. And so that nearly always includes some kind of pressure to his body or that movement piece. And so you say to mom, let's, let's talk about what you're doing during the day. You know, I, you may need to alternate things with him so that he has an opportunity to move around and run and play. And then you try to read a book. Or if he won't sit for meals, you say to mom, you know, we've got to really get him moving before these meals start because I tell you, this moving around, sitting down thing really, really works. <laughs> we've, got to, we've got to have these periods built in where we know anytime we expect him that he's got to be able to sit down with me and pay attention that you give him an opportunity to move first. And so that's how you do it, even in the context of using a consultative model where you're really just working, coaching a parent. And you talk about these things and you say, and this is how this looks. You know, we, we know that we want him to sit down with us and play this game with us or read this book with us or play with this tour with us, but we know he's not going to be ready to do it yet. We can't just make him do it. So let's think about what we can do movement-wise first. Can we run outside for uh, five minutes and then come back in and do the sit-down activity? Or even something like let's let him jump. Uh, you know, let's hold his hands and jump here on the floor or jump on the bed or jump on the couch. Or uh, let's throw him up in the air. Let's let's do that fun game that he already likes anyway. Let, that's movement. That's why he likes that game so much. And that's how you explain it. And then you do it with mom, and then you say, and now let's try that sit-down activity. So that's what we have to do. And, again, as a therapist, if you have never done therapy this way, you are going to be tired. <laughs> it will wear you out. But that's all right because you're going to get such good results that I know you're going to want to continue it. And if you are a pediatric therapist, especially if you are coming to work with toddlers and preschoolers in early intervention and preschool and you've never you've never even thought about practicing this way because you've seen school-aged children or adults your whole entire career, this one change can make a big, big difference. It's realizing, hey, I'm going to be, I'm going to move and then sit, move and then sit, move and then sit, and think about structuring your schedule or your therapy sessions that way. And especially if a child is doing that anyway, if you find that a child is getting up and leaving you a lot, think I need to adapt and I need to modify my expectations for him and, and really get that piece going and I know you're going to see dramatic results. Okay, number six here is keep it easy and I have in parentheses in the book enough, easy enough. So this recommendation, again, is sort of like made a child where he is and so you can't make, you can't always work on the most difficult thing. You've got to break 
your goals down into very sequential, achievable steps. So let's just take articulation or speech intelligibility. So let's say that keep it easy enough means that we are referring to, uh, with uh, as it relates to speech intelligibility, what specific sounds or patterns would be would we be targeting with the child? And you don't start out with the hardest thing. You want to make it as easy as possible because you want to get the most success. And so this, again, refers to looking at how your goals are structured. So if you, and we've used this example over and over and over, if you're trying to get a kid to talk and to imitate words and he's not there yet, you think, well, let me try something easier like some play sounds. So let's, instead of going for words like milk and mama and bye-bye and book and car, let's try words like uh-oh and wee and, you know, wow and, you know, whoops, you know, whatever those little play sounds, those would be easier for a child. For a child, if you still can't do that, you're going to back it up even further. You're going to think, let me get him to imitate some gestures here. Let me see if he can copy pointing after me. Let me see if he can clap his hands. Let me see if he can do the finger motions to Itsy Bitsy Spider. Can he imitate that if he can't imitate words? If a kid can't do that, you back it up even further. You say, let me get him to imitate some actions with these toys. Let's start with him just uh, rolling the car across the floor like I've done it. Let's start with him putting a hat on his head when we're playing with baby dolls. Let's start with, let's say that we're playing with baby dolls. Let's see if he can, uh, I'll show him how to feed the doll and then see if he can feed the doll too. Or if he can't do that, you think, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stir here in this bowl. Let's see if he can do that. Let's see if he can even copy me by banging the spoon on the floor as we are playing. And so, again, you take the easiest thing. You keep it easy enough and because otherwise it's too frustrating. And then no wonder the child doesn't want to participate. No wonder he's not continuing with you. So you always, again, have to think about that and have to uh, be sure that we are keeping our goals very, very, very um, easy. And, again, that whole meeting where they are is so important even for that particular uh, recommendation there, that particular key for success. So keep it easy enough. All right. And if you are looking for, especially if you're working on speech intelligibility as, you know, this information is pulled from that particular therapy manual, you've got to look at what patterns the child is achieving. And developmentally, you know, is is, is the word I'm trying to get him to say, is that too complex for him? Let me back that up. Let me back it up. And that functional phonology will teach you how to do that in this format. And that's so many of us as early interventionists struggle with working with articulation with toddlers. We know that the child is trying to talk and we can't understand what he's saying, but we we try, we just do silly things when we try to work on things that are just so unrealistic. So make sure that you're keeping your targets and your goals easy enough with that. And if you need a, a a guide for that functional phonology is fantastic for getting you started in the right direction to work on speech intelligibility in children. All right, last key principle for success for working with toddlers and preschoolers is keep it going. And so one of the most central principles for working with any young child is for, uh, and this especially applies to therapists, is you've got to teach people how to do it when you are not there. It does not matter if a child can say a new word only in the context of speech therapy. Now, you may feel so proud of yourself. You may feel like, oh, I am just the best therapist ever. 
you know, and I want you to feel accomplished, and I want you to feel like you know what you're doing, but guys, if they can only do it in therapy, it really doesn't matter yet because nobody else can see them do it. And so we have got to train parents. We've got to train caregivers. And that's how the whole coaching and consultative model came about in the first place is because there is a real void in how therapists focused on generalization or helping a child be able to use something new, use a new skill, use that new word that you worked so hard to teach him beyond 2 o'clock on Tuesdays. You know, again, it does not matter if a kid can do it at that time if he can't do it any other time. And so we have absolutely got to teach parents and sitters and grandparents and whoever else is an important person in that child's daily life. We've got to teach them how to work with the child. So I, I think about that is keep it going. We have to give solid advice and really specific activities and not just general things like talk to your child or read to your child. We've got to give them really specific things that they can do to work on what we've worked on in therapy. And so the very best way for parents to know what you're doing in therapy with the child, for this is for therapists right now, is for parents to participate. And sometimes that is so hard. I mean, I get email after email and question after question from therapists who say, how can I get more parental participation? What can I do to get mom to really buy into this with what we're doing? If they're not, you know, being there is over half the battle. If they see what you're doing, if they see the success that you're achieving, more importantly, if they're participating in that and they are a part of that, even in the session, it's going to be much, much easier for them to know what to do when you leave or when they go home. So, and, and sometimes, you know, that just our uh, model of service delivery just makes it absolutely impossible. If you work in a preschool, mom's not going to hang out there all day. You know, you don't even want that. That's not even possible. So you've got to think about how, and now I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about therapists who are really see children in a clinical setting when a parent could participate with you inviting them into the session and then with you saying, hey, don't sit up there in the chair. You get down here with us. <laughs> or if you're seeing them in a home setting or a lot of times a parent really likes kind of the drop-off model and we need to help them move towards staying and participating. And for some parents, it's just you saying, oh, mom, no, this therapy is more for you than it is for your child because you are the one who's with him all day. And so I'm teaching him some things, but really I'm teaching you what to do with him. And, again, that's why the whole consultative coaching model was born because we need to know how to teach parents what we're doing. And that's how we keep this success going is with parents really, really participating. And so if you're a parent listening to the show, my guess is you already participate because why in the world would you listen to a speech therapy podcast <laughs> if you weren't already super, super invested in your child's progress. But let's just say, let's say that you work and you listen to this podcast as a way to get ideas or a way to, a way to think about it or a way to uh, really make sure that you know what's going on. That is fantastic, but there is no substitute for you being a part of that therapy session and then more importantly, working with your child 
all day, every time, you know, anytime it's possible to really, really work on what you are trying to get him to do. And, and again, language, you talk to your child all day. He hears words all day. So there's really should be no real differentiation that this is speech time and this is not speech time. Language language happens all around us all day. And so think about it in that way. You know, how can I make this meaningful? How can I keep this going? And try to really... Um, Again, get away from that whole, well, this is therapy time and this is not therapy time. Think about your whole day as an opportunity to really address whatever it is that your child is working on developmentally. Let me give therapists kind of a parting word here. We talk a lot about giving parents homework and having them do homework, and that's fine. And I use that terminology. I think it's great. I think parents understand it. But it, so many times we just make these recommendations to parents, and then they come back the next session, or we see them for the next week if we're doing home visits, and we say, how did the homework go? And they say, fine. If a parent is just saying fine or good or okay, you know, that real general with no detail, coming back to you, chances are there's not much homework going on in the first place. And so you have got to be so specific. Anytime a parent is telling you things are going great, or well, if you're saying great, they're probably going to want to elaborate because, well, and they want to share with you all that they've accomplished. But if you are getting a really generic answer week after week after week, you have to really start to dig a little deeper and say, well, give me some examples or say, like, you know, last week now he learned uh, the signs for cookie and cracker. So let's talk about how that went home. Or say, what signs did he use for you this week? Tell me about it. You know, and I'll tell you one of the best things that I'm doing right now with children that I'm um, following. You know, I've just started to see kids again. And one of the things that I'm having everybody do um, is keep notes. You know, moms really, really keep notes with what they're doing during the week. And even if it's something simple like Logan, Logan said eat at lunchtime today, even if it's just a couple of little lines, that keeps everybody on track and I have this fantastic mom who's emailing me her notes right now and again these are not real elaborate things they're not keeping data like a therapist would during a session with a percentage of accuracy and blah 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 all that stuff they're not doing that they're just writing really simple things like if they're working on gestures you know he's he, today he waves bye-bye he claps he signed all done you know, just really simple notes. And, and there's no better example of keeping it going than a mom who takes the time to tell you what she's doing with her child at home. Now, can moms make all that up for the moment? Absolutely. We all can lie at will anytime. And you're not going to be able to stop that. As a therapist, you know, if you're kind of a negative person that's sort of leaning toward that, saying that's never going to help, that's never going to work. I promise, just try it. And it does not matter what education level a mom has or how much time she has, whether she's a stay-home mom or a working mom or, you know, somewhere in between. You know, all families look different. Everybody's schedule is crazy busy no matter what we're doing. But just that focus of, of saying to a mom, hey, why don't you just write down what you're working on because that's really, really going to help me the next time I see y'all, really help me 
see what's going on. It's going to help you remember to tell me what you want to talk about. If I'm seeing something week after week, and listen, you don't even have to see their notes. They don't have to text it to you or email it to you or provide you a written report. That's not what this is about. This is about helping parents understand how they can best help their children. And consistency and frequency really, really matters. Because if they are only focused on speech on the day that you have speech, you know, all of us tend to kind of uh, lay off a little bit. So let's say that, you know, you see a kid on Wednesday, mom may be kind of gung-ho on Thursday and Friday, but then by the time the weekend comes around, She's got so many other things going on. And then Monday is always a disaster, you know, because it's starting the week over. And then Tuesday, forget it. And then she comes back Wednesday, and you go there Wednesday, and then you rev up again. You know, that's just kind of the cycle. Or I've had moms that sometimes they'll say, man, therapy went so great, I didn't even think about it for two or three days because I was still riding high on what we did. You know, asking them to say, hey, will you just write down what you're doing every day so that I can better help you so that we can direct this and we can be a little bit more intentional and more purposeful about what's going on in his in your everyday life. You know, if you can help a mom do that and just help her get a little bit more focused that way, that sometimes will make a world of difference too. And it also impacts how often mom thinks about it. And let me tell you, this makes a big difference to dads because mom usually doesn't do this in a vacuum, meaning that she's not alone. She's saying to dad, it's what we did today. Oh, I'm so excited about this. And it keep, it pulls dad into that too. And so, or grandma, or the babysitter, or the daycare teacher, or the preschool teacher. And, you know, so that mom is saying, hey, I'm keeping notes for the speech therapist. I'm, I'm really telling her what's going on. So I need some feedback from you. So think about how you can do that. Think about how you can help parents keep it going after um, the therapy session is over. All right, so those were the seven principles for success when we're working with young children, no matter what our goal is, keep it fun, keep it real, keep it realistic, keep it meaningful, keep it moving, keep it easy enough, and keep it going. I hope that you can keep that going this week and remember uh, all those little principles as you are working with your own child over the whole caseload of little ones there, uh, no matter what your discipline is. And remember, if you're working with speech intelligibility and if you need a guide or really want to see this information in written form, it is in my therapy manual called Functional Phonology, and you can find that at teachmetotalk.com. All right, that's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining me. I just, I love the show, and I love the opportunity to get to share with you every week. All right, we'll be back next week. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.